Part 1. Saints and Symbols In 1925, U.S. President Calvin Coolidge said that the chief business of the American people is business. But just building a better mousetrap isn't enough to succeed. Products, businesses, and political messages require marketing. Much of the time, if the marketing is clever enough, even the worst products and ideas can succeed. And when it comes to good marketing, ask any person in the profession about the power and potency of icons and symbols. This is why companies and brands strive endlessly to make their trademarks and symbols transcend their products. These trademarks and symbols should insinuate themselves into the very fabric of our daily lives until products become a part of life itself. This works because humans tend to reduce massive or complex concepts into symbols. Look at how much emotion and unspoken meaning has been packed into the simple red American baseball or trucker's hat since 2016. Say the word Christmas to any American and ask them to sum up Christmas in just one or two symbols. Chances are that a massive majority would pick a decorated Christmas tree or a red-suited Santa. When symbols are so universally recognized, we would intuitively presume one of two things. Either the symbols are very, very old, or the symbols have been extremely well marketed. And we would be partly correct on both counts. Christmas itself is almost certainly a Christian superimposition of a church-chosen birthday for Jesus onto ancient midwinter festivals once celebrated throughout the Roman Empire and Northern Europe. Whispers of these pre-Christian solstice festivals can still be seen today in characters such as the Mummers and Straw Boys of rural Ireland. The origin of the Christmas tree also goes back to pre-Christian pagan Roman and Germanic Europe, and Santa Claus can ultimately be traced back to an early Christian bishop named Nicholas from Greek Byzantium, now in Turkey. But symbols of things aren't just lines and colours with a simple, fixed meaning. Symbols are a ferocious form of intellectual shorthand, avatars for vast ideas, history, memory, and deep-seated, unfathomable emotion. A swastika is far more than a simple, black-hooked cross. American traditions, symbols and icons have the same weight of meaning. Hell, even the humble American baseball hat is now about 150 years old. But in America, with its endless waves of immigration over many centuries, American symbols and traditions are made to carry the meaning assigned to them by peoples from utterly different cultures, with a myriad of belief systems. And when so many different people have a share in a symbol, eventually there remains only a tenuous link to the real things and real events which gave rise to those symbols. The baseball hat is an international symbol of Americana, yet it has moved far beyond its earliest iteration, when it looked like a version of the deerstalker hat worn by Sherlock Holmes. The humble baseball hat 
has also moved beyond its birth in the English and Irish games of baseball and rounders, far beyond baseball itself. And as baseball hats have changed in appearance over the decades, the feeling, the meaning, the symbolism of the baseball hat has changed too. Just as Babe Ruth has nothing to do with MAGA hats, St. Nicholas of Smyrna has almost nothing to do with the Santa of TV commercials. Looking at the commercial Uberfest, which is Christmas in the USA today, and knowing the ancient roots of Christmas, it might come as a surprise just how much of the actual iconography and symbolism is relatively new, with almost nothing to do with English culture or the English colonization of North America. With our elementary school history books emphasizing Jamestown and Plymouth as ground zero for American identity, it is easy to forget that the eastern seaboard of North America was once contested by multiple European powers. The earliest European settlement in what would later be called New England was actually founded at Castine in 1613, a place in present-day Maine, and it was a French settlement. This was, of course, seven years before the arrival of the Mayflower, some miles to the south. At the same time, Sweden had established colonies along the Delaware River in an area which would later become part of the states of Delaware, New Jersey, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. A large section of what would become New York State was settled by Dutch trading companies also during the early decades of the 1600s. The very first mention of Dutch Sinterklaas, or St. Nicholas in North America, wasn't seen until 1675, after the New Netherlands had been taken over by the English. This proto-Santa was mentioned on an order given to a Dutch baker for Kuchen und Sinterklaas good, cookies and Santa Claus goodies. My apologies to our Dutch-speaking listeners for the dreadful accent. In contrast to the religiously tolerant Dutch, or the Lutheran Swedes, or the Roman Catholic French, the English colonists of Massachusetts, Connecticut and elsewhere were largely governed by Puritans, a religious sect deeply hostile to Christmas celebrations. As the Puritan minister Cotton Mather chose to note in 1712, Christmas was a pagan tradition marred by mad mirth, by long eating, by hard drinking, by lewd gaming, by rude reveling. Besides this, Sinterklaas, with his origins in the Catholic veneration of saints, was anathema to English Protestant extremists. It is also worth noting that in Western Christian countries, the feast day of St. Nicholas took place on the 6th of December and had nothing to do with the feast day of the Nativity, or Christmas Day. In other words, Santa had nothing to do with Christmas. That would be a later American innovation. The birth of a singularly American way of looking at Christmas only occurred after extended labour pains attended by a most unexpected midwife. A British Navy man from the Orkney Islands off the north coast of Scotland settled in Manhattan, New York with his Cornish wife in the late 1700s. 
William Irving and his wife Sarah reared a large family, with one son being born in 1783, shortly after the British finally declared a formal ceasefire in its protracted war with the American colonies. So Sarah Irving named this son Washington. Washington Irving was a restless young man who showed little interest in his studies and even less interest in joining his father in the family mercantile business. Washington Irving was far more interested in travel, the arts and writing and was a keen follower of the theatre. A yellow fever epidemic in New York City in 1798 quite possibly did more than anything else in history to give rise to Christmas, American style. Aged 15, Washington Irving was sent inland and upriver by his parents, hoping to spare the boy from the dangerous miasma of sickness hanging over New York. It was during this time that young Irving would be exposed to an almost alien culture among the rural communities of New York, who were still suffused with the language, traditions and folklore of the New Netherlands. Washington Irving would later draw on these experiences, incorporating them into his writing. You've no doubt heard his stories. Rip Van Winkle, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, among others. Irving would also write A History of New York and collections of short stories which he called sketchbooks. It was in these sketchbooks that he introduced all of the proto-elements which form a large part of the American holiday season today. Ironically, Irving's celebration of old Christmas traditions had almost nothing to do with the habits or traditional culture of a newly independent USA. Irving drew on his own experiences of Christmas abroad from his time spent among the moneyed and landed gentry in the English countryside. He wrote of St. Nicholas Day and Christmas Day among the old Dutch communities of his home state, of the feasting and singing, and of Sinterklaas flying in a wagon high over the treetops of Dutch New York forests. Perhaps most ironic of all, Irving's research material for his Christmas stories included a book published in 1652, almost a century and a half before Irving was born. This book, A Vindication of Christmas, was written in the aftermath of the English Civil War, a time when English Puritans had tried hard to place a damper on Christmas revelry, which they associated with paganism and Catholicism. A Vindication of Christmas was essentially an argument against allowing English Puritanism, and by extension American religious fervor, to drain all of the fun from life. So modern Christmas, pretty much Washington Irving's nostalgic, semi-imaginary vision of Christmas, grew from an actual and active renunciation of the original War on Christmas a war waged by Puritan New Englanders. Of course, a dour, mostly Protestant New England was never going to go back to Elizabethan-style drunken revelry, much less the celebration of any Catholic saints' days. So St. Nicholas was unceremoniously detached from his traditional date of December the 6th, a Catholic day, and reattached to the 25th a day acceptable to Protestants. 
His saintly name was blurred by an English mispronunciation of his old Dutch nickname, perhaps an intentional mispronunciation. The one traditional aspect of St. Nicholas still accepted was his reputation for gift-giving. Where the Catholic and Orthodox Christian feasts of St. Nicholas and St. Stephen's Day, the day after Christmas, had once been a time for dispensing charity, food and gifts to poor strangers, Protestant Americans, perhaps with their Puritan-derived focus on patriarchy and the nuclear family, moved this once community-based gift-giving in-house. Christmas in the USA would be rejigged continuously due to this latent religious conservatism, and Christmas drifted slowly away from being a day of celebration for adult men and women. 19th century Victorian changes in attitude toward child labor and the Victorian artistic obsession with childhood as a time of innocence completed this cultural shift. Although Americans might have denied it, the shadow cast by Queen Victoria over middle-class American culture was, and still is, profound. And so it was that Christmas became a day for children. The UK royal household of Victoria and her beloved Albert, more German than English, also introduced the Northern European custom of decorating evergreen trees into England. And again, another old world fashion soon took off in the USA. The metamorphosis of St. Nicholas to Sinterklaas into Santa Claus was now almost complete, as other 19th century writers and cartoonists added new details, drawing on pagan Germanic and Scandinavian folklore, the latter possibly borrowed from the settlers of New Sweden. The old Dutch wagons of the New Netherlands were now transformed into sleighs, with horses replaced by Scandinavian reindeer, and St. Nicholas was now described as an elf. Throw in some Charles Dickens with his book A Christmas Carol, and there you go. American Christmas pre-commercialization. Are you still with us? Good. Because the USA is the cultural invention which never stops giving. If modern Christmas was born in the hugely popular writings of Washington Irving, it went through its adolescence in Hollywood. And we all know how mixed up adolescence can be. Hi, I'm Brian Halpin, and this is Episode 9 of Before We Were White. How lovely are thy branches. Part 2. Making it up as we go along. We've heard how symbols can become heavy with meaning, 
while representing completely made-up traditions. But can the same be said of our wider popular culture? Can the same be said of national identity itself? Almost nothing has been as powerful, as instrumental, in the construction of American identity as Hollywood. Were the films of early Hollywood reflective of actual American culture, or were they just completely imaginary visions of American history and identity? In other words, did Hollywood do a Washington Irving and offer up a wished-for world? And if early Hollywood produced made-up images and symbols of America, who exactly was doing this making up? Even though writers like Charles Dickens, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Washington Irving, and Edgar Allan Poe were hugely popular during the 19th century in the urban centers of the USA, it should be remembered that much of rural America was still functionally illiterate during that century. When people owned a book at all, it was almost always a Bible. With so few literary characters populating their impressionable minds, rural boys and girls and teenagers naturally still looked to the real adults around them when searching for role models. Oral history, traditional storytelling, balladry and travelling shows added to the range of characters in the American imagination. But on the whole, young people took their social cues from real people. All of this changed with the birth of radio and cinema. Rural and small town dwellers no longer had to wait for a once-a-year travelling show to arrive in town. These new entertainment media were able to turbocharge the dissemination of popular culture, redefine the range of personal aspirations, and provide role models from outside one's community. In a strange fluke of history, this new era of radio and filmmaking corresponded and overlapped with three great waves of immigration to America, one Italian and two Jewish. Between the late 1840s and the end of World War I, about a quarter of a million German Jews entered the USA. The next wave was much larger, with around 2 million Eastern European Jews arriving in the USA between 1880 and the mid-1920s, from Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, and from lands of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. Put another way, in the space of 40 years, the USA went from having an openly Jewish population of less than half of 1% to over 2%. One in 50 Americans were now Jewish. As immigrants or the children of immigrants who had fled the social and political unrest sweeping Central and Eastern Europe during the 1840s, this massive Jewish diaspora included people from every economic level with a range of political outlooks and skills readily marketable within the burgeoning U.S. entertainment industry. Some were mid-level traders and merchants. For example, many arrived with a background in shoemaking, tailoring, and mass clothing distribution. Others were already at the forefront of pre-cinema entertainment, such as theatre, vaudeville, music and dance halls, penny arcades and Nickelodeons. Some were eager to embrace the capitalist dream, 
while others were communists, anarchists, or socialists, deeply invested in the idea of universal human rights and internationalism due to their bad experiences in Europe. The USA entertainment industry of the 19s, 1920s, and 1930s had a place for people from both ends of the economic and political spectrum. The business-minded began moving from running live performance theatres into film studio ownership and production, with left-leaning individuals more prevalent in the fields of writing and performance. So far, so clear. If we can accept that there are simple socio-economic reasons, historical reasons, for certain ethnic groups showing up in certain industries at certain times, we can avoid veering off into Kanye West territory, in which a coalescence of circumstances turns into a conspiracy. The overproportionate Jewish representation in early Hollywood is no more strange than the 19th and early 20th century Irish overrepresentation in urban police forces and fire departments. There is also a reason most of the earliest cowboys in Texas were African American, Indigenous American, and Mexican. Men of Anglo descent are overrepresented among the chairmen and owners of companies and country golf clubs in New England. The Puritans were in the right place, at the right time, and in terms of the indigenous peoples they supplanted, the Puritans were ruthless enough to achieve hegemony, opening the path to great wealth for many. Did racism and ethnic in-group nepotism exist among immigrant groups? Of course they did. 19th century Irish immigrants were notoriously clannish and racist. So to claim that being Jewish in an industry largely owned and controlled by Jews did not confer any career advantage is simply gaslighting, to borrow a term from a film directed by a Jewish gentleman named George Cukor. But calling the situation in early Hollywood a conspiracy to control the media crosses a line. A wave of immigrants simply spotted a niche in the capitalist market and got there first. And after all, the business of America is business, as the economist Milton Friedman said when paraphrasing Coolidge. It is important to remember that the Jewish diaspora were not and are not a monolith. This point is easy to forget, although even underclass Jewish people enjoyed a social privilege above many other ethnic groups in America. This is a point worth teasing out. Jewish people in America were generally an underclass compared to conventional white Protestant America. While social policies toward Jews in places like Eastern Europe and Western Russia were varied, it is probably true to say that the shtetl settlement system created a very cohesive sense of Jewish community. And it was this cultural and community cohesion which gave them a big social advantage over African Americans and indigenous Americans who had had their communities and culture quite intentionally broken. An Irishman arriving in Boston found a community. Italians found communities waiting in places like New Jersey. A Ukrainian Jew arriving in New York found a community. Not so for African and indigenous Americans, who had had their cultural cohesion destroyed by 300 years of chattel slavery, 
war, disease, and genocide. And while many American Indian tribes survived as cultural communities, albeit in a much reduced state, things were much worse for African Americans, in which being culturally Igbo or Mbundu was long dead. This distinction matters. Jewish immigrants often shared a similar history, a common religion with rabbis and cantors, clearly defined cultural practices, shared kosher foodways, access to literacy and further education, and more. African Americans, on the other hand, often shared only their skin color and a shared experience of Jim Crow, with almost no prospects in the South and limited educational and employment prospects in the North. So yes, Jewish people definitely had privilege compared to African Americans with access to almost nothing. But it does bear repeating again. The Jewish diaspora were not, and are not, a monolith. Old white guys, a term much used in the current identity wars, are likewise not a monolithic group operating in concert, even if white privilege exists. And it does. All of this requires nuanced thinking. But one thing is certain and undeniable. The expression of American culture on film in the early days of Hollywood was mediated to a great extent through the sensibilities and business decisions of Jewish immigrants. And that includes Christmas on the silver screen. Christmas favorite, It's a Wonderful Life, from 1946, was made by Liberty Films, a company founded by Italian-American Frank Capra and Jewish-American Samuel Briskin, who was of Russo-Ukrainian background. Directed by Capra, its screenplay was co-written by Capra and the husband and wife team of Albert Hackett and his wife Frances Goodrich, who was herself Jewish. Its music was scored by Dmitry Tiomkin, a Jewish-Russian whose father was a friend of the Zionist Paul Ehrlich. Miracle on 34th Street, from 1947, was made by 20th Century Pictures, a company founded by Jewish-Russian Joseph Schenk and Daryl F. Zanuck, the latter often wrongly presumed to have been Jewish due to his Germanic surname. This Christmas classic was produced by William Perlberg, the Jewish-Polish grandson of fur manufacturer Israel Perlberg. The film was directed by George Stenius, a second-generation Swedish-American convert to Judaism and co-written with Valentine Davies, son of a New York property mogul of Jewish-German background. Perhaps the biggest Christmas film of all time, White Christmas, from 1954, was a Paramount Pictures production. 
This company was founded by Jewish-Hungarian Adolf Zukor and the Jewish Froman Brothers of Ohio. Directed by Jewish-Hungarian Michael Curtis, born Mano Kamina, its writing team included the Jewish-Russian Norman Krasna, along with Melvin Frank and Norman Panama, both also Jewish. Music was written and scored by Jewish-American Gershon Gus Levine, Joseph Lilly, and Van Cleve, the husband of Jewish-English woman Doris Blumenfeld. The cast included Bing Crosby and Irish-American Rosemary Clooney, along with Jewish-American Danny Kaye, born David Daniel Kaminsky. The title song itself, White Christmas, was actually taken from the overtly racist 1942 film Holiday Inn and was written by the legendary Jewish-Russian-American songwriter Irving Berlin, who was born Israel Berlin. Just like the ones I used to know. So, we've shown how much of the way America learned to view Christmas and much of American culture and identity in general was often a creation of the mass media. And this mass media, from 19th century newspapers, periodicals and novels on to the early days of filmmaking and radio, was often being financed by people from outside America or produced by people new to America. So, is there a right person to create Christmas? This podcast is deeply skeptical of the modern trend to shout cultural appropriation whenever someone supposedly outside one culture borrows or portrays aspects of that culture. It's a slippery slope. The Mexican Day of the Dead, Dia de Muertos, is a perfect case in point, with many on the outer fringes of leftist identity politics admonishing Americans for appropriating aspects of this day and turning it into a sort of Latino-Latina version of American Halloween. And yet, just as American Christmas has become far removed from its ultimate roots in early Christian Byzantium, the Mexican Day of the Dead has also evolved far from its putative origins in Aztec culture, only assuming its current incarnation through centuries of Catholic Church repurposing and much political intervention. Considering the huge cultural influence of Latin America in the American Southwest, telling Americans to assume a somber and respectful distance from Mexican holidays would be much like berating a Mexican for putting up a Christmas tree. Everything from jazz, country, gospel and hip-hop music to the outdoor American barbecue, Halloween, tacos, burritos, None of these things would exist without some level of cultural appropriation or cross-pollination. As part of the creative process, people should be able to draw inspiration from anywhere. Men can even write books from a woman's viewpoint. Irish Americans can sing the blues. Whether the results of such creative endeavors are any good, well, that's another question altogether. So. Who is best placed to hold up a mirror to American identity? Recent immigrants, perhaps? Who is best placed to tell the actual story of America? 
only people whose ancestors arrived at Plymouth or Jamestown? Or maybe we should just leave it to scholars, folklorists and historians. Were 19th century readers and mid-20th century cinema goers being given the Christmas they wanted? The Christmas someone thought they wanted? Or maybe even the Christmas someone wanted them to want? Does it even matter who tells us or sells us our story of Christmas? Or the story of America in general? A not-so-simple answer might be, well, that depends. And it depends on what such stories are meant to achieve. After all, Washington Irving was also the son of immigrants, with no transgenerational shared experience of distinctively American ways and culture. Washington Irving did not sell us a Christmas based in the culture of his own people. His Christmas was not the Christmas of his father's Orkney childhood. His Christmas was a dreamland, a dreamland of feasts in English baronial halls, spiced with the exotica of a half-imaginary and almost disappeared old-world-style Dutch colonial hinterland, complete with dimple-cheeked buxom lassies smiling over steaming apple pies and pewter mugs of hot buttered rum laced with visions of old men flying magical wagons on high. And Hollywood, at least in its early iteration, also sold us a hybrid Christmas based partly in the American imagination and partly in the culture of its screenwriters and producers. Take the aforementioned White Christmas. The entire premise of the film is tailored around an actually very Jewish-American urban scenario, a story set among nightclubs and variety show performers, with the main character, Bob Wallace, working for the U.S. Special Services Division as a troop entertainer during World War II. This morale and troop entertainment division of the U.S. Army was in fact the brainchild of orchestra leader Harry Salter, who usually developed these soldier shows and reviews in conjunction with the mainly Jewish songwriters of New York's Tin Pan Alley. Irving Berlin, who wrote the song White Christmas, had himself worked as a songwriter for similar soldier shows during World War I. In fact, almost all the musical numbers in White Christmas are a recycling of songs penned by Jewish-American songwriters over the previous few decades, including songs written for or referencing earlier racist black minstrel shows. And while the 1954 film White Christmas had been scrubbed up somewhat to hide the racist roots of many of its musical numbers, this whitewashing certainly didn't stretch to including black soldiers, black musicians, or black entertainers in the film. Songs penned by Irving Berlin in the 1920s, like Blue Skies, got another run out in White Christmas. And while no one performed in blackface, this still didn't stop Bing and company from vocally reminiscing on screen about the good old blackface minstrel show days. The only person of color in the film White Christmas is a brief cameo of a man serving behind the bar in a whites-only nightclub. Setting aside the absence of positive acting roles for African Americans during Hollywood's so-called golden age, 
It can also seem strange how an industry built in such large part by Jewish entrepreneurs told us so very little, in direct terms, about Jewish life past or present, whether in a Ukrainian shtetl or in America's cities. There have been a few notable exceptions, such as the much later Fiddler on the Roof, or indeed the very first talking motion picture, The Jazz Singer, a film featuring Jewish actor Al Jolson as an aspiring singer who performs much of the film in blackface. Now, the obvious reason for this ethnic blankness in these films is that filmmakers and studio owners wanted to put butts on seats. When 49 out of 50 Americans were not Jewish, and 9 out of 10 Americans were not black, it would have been a foolish businessman who made holiday films set around Hanukkah or segregated African-American communities. Early mainstream Hollywood also tended to steer well clear of anything critical of the USA or its segregated socioeconomic systems. Recent immigrants are of course often deeply invested in their adopted nation, and criticizing the USA would have been a poor way to get Americans to part with their money at the box office. This obviously counts double for films made during a time of war. But reasons are not justifications. That sentence right there is so true, I'm going to say it again. Reasons are not the same thing as justifications. Risk-taking filmmakers like Orson Welles learned the hard way what happens when film is used as a vehicle for criticizing aspects of the American way, or the capitalist barons who profit most from it. His film Citizen Kane, widely reviewed as a masterpiece since the 1950s, was locked out of most cinemas upon its release in 1941 because studio-owned movie theaters feared the wrath of publishing magnates such as William Randolph Hearst, who felt personally attacked by Wells' film. This near monopoly, which allowed the big five studios to lock independent filmmakers out of cinemas, was only broken in 1948, when the Supreme Court ruled against Paramount Pictures in an antitrust lawsuit. With little culture shared with rural or heartland America, and little to gain from critiquing it, Hollywood studios run by immigrants or the children of immigrants often chose to reach for the aspirational rather than the now, for the American dream over social realism for fantasy over the docudrama, and for the universal rather than the specific. And it is this simple universality which made Hollywood one of the USA's greatest exports worldwide. But it is precisely this almost naive and generally upbeat universality which made so much Hollywood fare seem maudlin, saccharine, moralizing, simplistic, or just plain inauthentic to many people in other parts of the world. By contrast, later Christmas films such as 1971's The Homecoming, A Christmas Story, based on Earl Hamner Jr.'s 1961 novel Spencer's Mountain, 
had a certain authenticity due to the author's upbringing in 1920s and 1930s Southern Appalachia. This film starred Hollywood legend Patricia Neal, a girl from Whitley County, Kentucky, while the later spin-off TV series The Waltons descended into a predictable level of feel-good, old-timey, sanitized nostalgia, minus the vastly talented Patricia Neal, it might be said, the Waltons, on the surface at least, attempted to portray an America based in some level of reality. So, should city people and recent immigrants stick to telling Christmas stories based in their own history, experiences, and traditions? Or can the eye of new or recent immigrants and urban dwellers spot curious aspects of heartland American culture which might otherwise go unremarked? Any brief overview seems unpromising at best. Whenever Hollywood dares to venture anywhere near rural America, especially Appalachia, the Ozark Mountains, or Deep South, its take on life there has always been far less nuanced or sympathetic than seems decent. Instead of exploring the complex stories of families and communities tempered by decades at the bleeding edge of frontiers, stories of people hardened by Indian wars and racism, endless winters, slave uprisings, tornadoes, massacres, Civil wars, crop failures, whiskey rebellions, bushwhackings, floods, lynchings, trade union battles against mining companies, or even people publishing the very first abolitionist newspaper in the USA in Tennessee. What we got was... Deliverance. The Hills Have Eyes. Hillbilly Elegy, Cabin Fever. On TV as well, rural America was usually portrayed as veering between the laughable and the menacing. And when Hollywood does decide to portray Heartland American characters in a positive light, they often seem little more than cardboard cut-out white male heroes, usually in westerns or wartime settings. And yet, to be fair, people from outside Heartland American culture can portray it in new and interesting ways when they approach it with sympathy and an open mind. Stepping away from Christmas films for a moment, one of the most atmospheric and poignant evocations of rural or Western America ever seen by this commentator came via a German film director named Wilhelm Wim Wenders. As an American GI stationed near the Iron Curtain in early 1980s West Germany, I was mesmerized to see the American West of my childhood framed in a completely new way while sitting in a German cinema, watching Harry Dean Stanton act out an American story but as viewed through German eyes. The film Paris, Texas utterly changed the way I perceived the landscape of my own culture and upbringing, not to mention creating an abiding love for the music of Rai Cooter. But enough of these musings. We've looked at the people who wrote American Christmas. We've looked at the people who 
produced American Christmas, filmed American Christmas, distributed American Christmas. What about the people who acted the American Christmas? Part 3. Acting American In the early days of Tinseltown, including the silent era, actors were often drawn from the American working classes and underclasses. While many Hollywood film companies were also run by people who had started from relatively humble backgrounds, once they had established and consolidated the studio system, Film company moguls were immensely wealthy and ruthless. Actors from working class backgrounds were almost never free agents and were usually tied to studio contracts, which gave them almost no artistic freedom and little bargaining leverage. The film production company United Artists was in fact founded by actors and directors eager to escape the clutches of the big five or six Hollywood studios. By the 1950s, things had improved somewhat, and true stars had more control over their own destinies. Arguably the most famous Christmas film of all time, White Christmas, was headlined by a man very much in control of his own destiny by 1954, when the film was released. A man more famous for his singing than his acting. A man born in Tacoma, Washington State in 1903. A man whose first musical group was formed in high school by two Native American brothers named Miles and Al Rinker of the Coeur d'Alene or Skitswish people from the lands where Montana, Idaho and Washington State meet. This fact is tinged with some sad irony, as we will learn later. A man who got his first real leg up in show business after a sister of his Rinker bandmates, indigenous American jazz singer Mildred Bailey, recommended his act to Marcus Louvre, owner of a nationwide chain of theatres. This would be THE Marcus Louvre, son of Jewish-German immigrants, who had started off his business career running penny arcades in New York City, but eventually helped found Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, now more commonly known simply as MGM. This star of White Christmas was a certain Harold Lillis Crosby, more commonly known to posterity as the crooner Bing Crosby. This is the part in every Before We Were White podcast episode where the rubber hits the road. For most of Bing Crosby's career, his public identity was largely associated with his perceived Irish roots. In his most successful film, he played an Irish priest. He received an Oscar for his turn in this sentimental Irish-themed musical comedy called Going My Way. Famous songs recorded by Crosby included the Irish-American penned Christmas in Killarney. It would not be off the mark to say that Bing Crosby was in fact often seen as basically Irish-American. 
Any quick internet search will return page after page reaffirming this perception, with almost all search engine results agreeing that Bing Crosby was of Irish and English descent. But was he? The answer is partly. Bing Crosby's mother was an American of Irish ancestry, although born and reared in Minnesota. And Bing Crosby's maternal grandparents were also of Irish ancestry, even if actually born and reared in Canada. Only when we reach Crosby's maternal great-grandparents do we find people actually born in Ireland, the Harrigan people from 1700's County Cork. Is this enough to make a person Irish-American? Maybe. Especially if cultural traditions were maintained down the generations. But with this being America, people tend to carefully curate and select the cultural traditions and ethnic backgrounds, which will allow them to fit in or advance in society at any given time. What about Crosby's father, his supposedly English father's background? The father said to descend from the Crosbys of Elizabethan-era Yorkshire. As ever with American history, the sin is in the omission. We would have to go all the way back to the 1630s to find a Crosby born in England, and with 300 years and eight generations of intermixing in America, selecting this one English-born fifth-great-grandparent out of 128 fifth-great-grandparents is scarcely a reasonable way to mark a person out as ethnically English. It's only when we root around the other 63 fifth great-grandparents on his father's side of the family that we get to meet the Smith, Underhill and Lincoln families. Both the Underhill and Smith families included people classified as free persons of colour during the 1800s. One such Smith household being one of Bing Crosby's second great-grandfathers. These Smiths can be traced back to the earliest days of New York in the 1600s. The New York of Sinterklaas, if you will. How and why Crosby's Smith and Underhill ancestors included people of color is anyone's guess. Intermarriage with indigenous people? The offspring of slaves and slaveholders? Romany gypsy traders? Maybe they were Jewish slaveholding families who had left Brazil for New Amsterdam after the Dutch West Indies Company lost its colony there to the Portuguese. The fact is, we might never know. And what about the Lincolns in the Crosby family? Bing Crosby isn't the only cast member of White Christmas to have connections to these Lincolns. Lincoln people with deep roots also in colonial New England. In fact, the very Lincolns who would give their name to arguably the greatest leader in USA history, Abraham Lincoln. Rosemary Clooney, co-star with Crosby, also came from only a partly Irish background, but like Bing, was widely seen as Irish-American. Clooney's father was a Kentuckian, and her paternal grandfather was a Kentuckian of Irish ancestry. Her paternal grandmother was an Ohioan, born to German immigrants. Clooney's mother was also a Kentuckian, as was her maternal grandfather, a man also of Irish ancestry. 
Clooney's maternal grandmother, on the other hand, had deep roots going back generations in Kentucky and the Ohio country of the late 1700s. This is a long-winded way of saying that Rosemary Clooney was not born in Ireland. Her parents were not born in Ireland. Her grandparents were not born in Ireland. And only half of her deep ancestry was Irish. This matters because we are establishing a pattern. Most so-called white Americans don't tend to describe themselves as mixed ethnic. Most so-called white Americans pick the ethnicity with which they would like to identify, even if it forms only a remote or partial fraction of their mixed American ancestry. In most cases, any non-white ancestry has been hushed up or ignored until it was forgotten. Anyway, back to the Lincolns. Rosemary Clooney's nephew George Clooney, just like Bing Crosby, has very deep roots in colonial and frontier-era America, also including these Lincolns. Just like the Crosbys, the Lincolns can be traced all the way back to early Puritan times in New England, and back even further to England itself. Abraham Lincoln's earliest Lincoln ancestor arrived in Massachusetts during the 1630s, as a humble 15-year-old indentured servant. And just like the Crosbys, 300 years in America moved many, many Lincolns far beyond their English roots, and far beyond any cultural Puritanism or ethnic sense of Englishness. Abraham's grandfather, also called Abraham Lincoln, was born in Pennsylvania in 1744, migrating south into Virginia and onto Kentucky with the wave of settlers grabbing land in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War. This elder Abraham would be slain by Indians in front of his son Thomas, near the place now known as Louisville, Kentucky. This son, Thomas Lincoln, would go on to marry a girl named Nancy Hanks, who would give birth to the baby Abraham Lincoln in Kentucky. Nancy would die of milk poisoning at the age of only 34, when Abraham Lincoln was only a nine-year-old boy. Milk poisoning claimed the lives of thousands of settlers in this region who were unaware of the properties of unfamiliar plants such as snake root, which when grazed upon by dairy cattle, turns their milk into a lethal poison. Thomas Lincoln was later described by his presidential son as being of a swarthy complexion with black hair and brown eyes. Abraham Lincoln's paternal grandmother was a herring by birth, with ancestors traceable to a documentary dead end in the region on the eastern seaboard now known as Sussex County, Delaware. You might recall from the start of this podcast that this region was settled by the Dutch, Swedes and Finns during the 1600s, and without definitive DNA testing, it is hard to explore the deeper roots of these herrings. The surname itself is found in multiple variations among many ethnic groups. Spelled variously herring, like the fish, or heron, like the bird, hern, like the Irish name, and indeed herring, H-A-R-I-N-G, the name is quite common among the Romani people of the British Isles, for example. This surname is even found among people of Sami or Laplander heritage, an intriguing possibility considering the presence of forest fins in New Sweden. 
We do not know Abraham Lincoln's maternal grandfather because Abe's mother, Nancy Hanks, was an illegitimate daughter of Lucy Hanks. And Lincoln was notoriously reticent about his ancestral origins on this side of his family. Conventional histories have squabbled over Lincoln's ancestry for decades, attempting to shoehorn Lincoln into any number of acceptable genealogies. Modern DNA analysis has put that baby to bed. While there's no fully sequenced genome with which to identify his maternal grandfather's ethnic origins, a man who may in fact have been black, hence the reticence, we have known the mitochondrial haplogroup of Nancy Hanks since 2015, and it is X1C. X1C is a very rare female haplogroup, in fact so rare, that we can almost pinpoint its likely origin. This haplogroup is found almost exclusively in parts of North Africa and the Middle East, reaching its highest frequency among the Druze people of Israel, Syria and Lebanon. Which makes for a rather delightful case of life coming full circle. One of George Clooney's fifth great-grandmothers, Lucy Hanks, brought before a court on a charge of fornication, mother of Nancy Hanks, who was in turn the mother of Abraham Lincoln, quite possibly had a distant great-grandmother from Lebanon. Which is funny, considering that George Clooney's high-flying barrister wife, Amal Alamuddin, was born in Beirut to a Druze father and a half-Tunisian, half-Palestinian-Jordanian mother. Almost kissing cousins, as they used to say. Part 4. Afterward. This has been a long, somewhat complicated episode, so let's circle back to a few key points and try to draw all these threads together into a neat bundle. There are two Americas. One is the America of our imagination, the America of symbols. The other America is virtually unknown because it has been buried under layers and layers and layers of collective amnesia, dead silence, loud hubris, and endless backslapping and myth-making. This is no accident, and almost everyone, bar the victims, has been complicit. In this episode, we have used Christmas as a lens for looking at the way America's culture, its very self-identity, has been created over decades, centuries, and oftentimes through the business decisions of publishers and filmmakers, rather than through organic development. We have seen how writers and filmmakers, often with no knowledge of deep American history, have fashioned a cheerful, narcissistic mirror, reflecting only a culture which people will pay to gaze into. Look, that's us! Aren't we great? Show me again. 
We have seen how early Hollywood actors who portrayed America, Americans, and Americanness were often being actors even when off the film set, without even realizing it, being a people untethered from any real cultural identity, with no sense of where they really came from. Because American history was too multi-ethnic, too violent, and too ugly for their fathers and grandfathers to be truthful about it. In a way, many Americans are like orphans who were raised to believe their real parents were gentlefolk. I'm going to leave you with one last thing. The story of a couple of the first ever feature-length films made in California. Remember Marcus Louv, the guy with the theatres which gave Bing Crosby a start in show business? Louv had moved from Penny Arcades into Nickelodeons and then onto vaudeville and movie theatres by 1904, eventually founding Louv's Consolidated Enterprises with Joseph Schenk and Adolf Zucker by 1910. By 1913, Louv was a major player in New York, Washington, Boston, and Philadelphia theater ownership. 1913 was coincidentally also the year that much filmmaking moved from the East Coast to California, as films are less likely to run over budget in a dry, predictable climate. Not to mention that such a move sidestepped Thomas Edison's unethical and constant litigious attempts to monopolize and control the film distribution and film projector industry. In 1924, Marcus Loew, along with David Warfield and Adolf Zucker, combined Metro Pictures, Goldwyn Pictures, and Louis B. Meyer Pictures into one company, MGM. Metro Pictures had been founded in Florida in 1915 by Roland and Grombacher, with Louis B. Meyer, born Lazar Meyer, acting as secretary. Goldwyn Pictures had been founded in 1916 by Samuel Goldwyn, who was born Shmuel Gilbfish, and the Selwyn brothers, who were born as the Simon brothers. Louis B. Meyer would become one of the powerful men in early Hollywood, and like a proto-Harvey Weinstein, made or destroyed the careers of women who accepted or rejected his advances. Samuel Goldwyn's brother-in-law was another Jewish-American man named Jesse Lasky, founder of Lasky's Feature Play Company, which would later form part of Paramount Pictures. The Squaw Man, made in 1914 and produced by Lasky, is generally considered to be the first Hollywood feature-length film ever made. The Squaw Man was based on a 1905 melodramatic stage play written by Edmund Milton Royal of Missouri and plays heavily on the popular trope of Indian maiden falls hopelessly in love with heroic white man. See Captain Smith and Pocahontas for more details. This film starred Dustin Farnham, a singer and dancer from New Hampshire, and a Winnebago or Ho-Chunk woman named Lillian Margaret Sancier also known as Red Wing, whose husband James Younger Johnson, also known as James Young Deer, was of mixed Lenape, African, and European ancestry. 
Lillian was one of thousands of American Indian children removed from their communities and re-educated in special industrial schools. So the first feature-length film made in Hollywood, California, was a Western set in Ute Indian Territory in Wyoming. It was produced by a son of Jewish immigrants, based on a stage play written by a Missouri-born New Yorker, and directed by Massachusetts man Cecil B. DeMille, grandson of hardcore, well-to-do supporters of the Confederacy. It starred another New Englander playing an Englishman, and a Winnebago woman playing a Ute Indian. A Winnebago girl who had been forcefully assimilated into white culture at Carlisle Industrial School in Pennsylvania. A school run by the man who coined the phrase, kill the Indian to save the man. The irony of such a girl ending up plain Indian for the edification of the people who had made sure that Indians would only exist on reservations or in films is beyond belief. In other words, the mythos of the American West on film, the very Western genre, right from its inception, was written and produced by people with not one ounce of cultural background or lived experience of its reality. The Western genre was invented to make money. Historical facts be damned. If Lasky had wanted to make a film set in the Ute territory with the word squaw in the title, he could have drawn on the recent Squaw Fight of 1867, in which a Mormon militia slaughtered a number of Ute men by mistake. For a filmmaker in 1915, the time remove would have been much like how the Coen brothers recently and realistically set a film in 1980, as they did in the film No Country for Old Men. There would have been plenty of Mormons still around to act as technical advisors. They could have told Lasky how they had taken Ute women and children captive. They could have shown the cameraman exactly where and how the Mormons shot the women and children as they tried to escape. A sort of reverse cinema verite, if you will. This, this, by the way, got called the Squaw Fight by Mormon writers. It's in history books. Not school history books, of course. And if 1915 seems too far away to taint those of us here today, remember that when Marcus Love gave Bing Crosby a start in showbiz on the advice of Native American woman Mildred Bailey, the Crosbys of Bing's grandfather's generation had literally been riding around Washington State on horseback, murdering American Indians to make way for settlers not just defending their farmsteads, riding out and hunting down women and children hiding in the woods. Needless to say, no Western has yet been made showing the Mashal Massacre. Would one in a thousand Americans today know anything whatsoever about the Nisqually people? Probably not. 
The Hollywood decision to continue putting money ahead of any attempt at authenticity or moral rectitude reached its apotheosis with 1936's Gone with the Wind, produced by David Selznick, another abuser of power who would be firmly in the sights of the Me Too movement were he alive today. Gone with the Wind, one of the most popular and successful films of all time, and a film in which viewers were invited to sympathize with a heroine who would do just about anything to get her stuff back after the Civil War took it away. A feisty heroine who really, really missed having slaves around the place. All of this isn't a critique of fictional whimsy. No one expects Tinseltown to serve up unadulterated reality. Cinema is many things, including escapism. But even when actors portray imaginary Americans and imaginary events, there should be a deep, mutually understood cultural well to draw from. A well with an element of truth and authenticity in it. A sort of unspoken understanding of the common culture shared between artist and audience. The reason a work of complete fantasy like Lord of the Rings feels so ancient, so weirdly authentic, is because J.R.R. Tolkien was a linguistic scholar steeped in the old languages and legends of the British Isles. The hobbit Bilbo Baggins was instantly recognisable to many interwar-era English people as being one of them, with his love of the green countryside, his well-tended garden, his quiet, self-deprecating and unassuming nature, his wish to avoid any of the unpleasantness happening somewhere over there. Any Irish person actually born and reared in Ireland, and we're not talking about third or fourth generation Irish Americans, we're talking about Irish people. They know they are Irish because most Irish people have shared the same island, a place of rain and grass and bogland, for over 2,000 years, and in many cases for over 5,000, 7,000, or even 9,000 years. The common language spoken by the Irish had been Gaelic since the Iron Age, with medieval overlays of Viking, Scandinavian and Norman, with Gaelic giving way only much later, under pressure brought by her English conquerors. Hiberno-English still betrays this Gaelic foundation in its distinct turns of phrase. So when Irish writers write Irish characters, when Irish actors play Irish characters, however fanciful, there is a sense of a real people trying to tell stories based on a shared past. Compare a film like Sligo man Neil Jordan's The Butcher Boy with Ron Howard's faux Irish Far and Away. The former draws from a cultural well. The latter is simply commercial, shallow, ridiculous tripe with terrible accents. Not unlike much of the output from Hollywood's major studios during the entire first half of the 20th century. Like the charity-giving Nicholas of Smyrna becoming Santa Claus holding a soft drink bottle, the American frontier of slaughter and genocidal violence became just a scenic backdrop for tales of white heroism, with Indians as props, not people. Indians were reduced to symbols, cursed to live in a land of feathered headdresses on Washington Redskins football helmets, 
imbued with a meaning shallower than that of a red MAGA hat. At least it took 1500 years for the metamorphosis of Nicholas into a consumerist deity. The Wild West was being sold by Hollywood with its victims barely cold in the grave. As America entered the Roaring Twenties and the Jazz Age, the surviving children, who had been witnesses to the California genocide, were still in their fifties, living in squalor in the hills above the new coastal towns of sunny, golden, dreamland California. For context, it is now 2023, about 78 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. 78 years is not all that long ago. The world remembers. Victims of that horror, Jews, Romani, LGBT people, are still with us today. Two years, just two years after the release of the Squaw Man, a member of the Yahi tribe of California called Ishi, passed away. When Ishi came down from his mountain canyon in 1911, as the last surviving member of his community, it was only 40 some odd years since his people, men, women, children, and the elderly, had been driven into caves and butchered by American settler militias. Yep, more of those damn militia. We'll resist the temptation to comment on the Second Amendment and the real reasons it allowed for the existence of well-regulated militias. Ishii had spent all of his life, since childhood, hiding in the mountains, living in abject terror of becoming another victim of the genocide. And if any listeners out there find the term genocide a bit strong, then the word genocide has no meaning. Even a failed attempt to exterminate an entire people is called genocide. But when such an attempt is wholly successful, the dreadful event almost deserves a new word to reflect a more consummate evil. Americans exterminated entire peoples in California. Not by accident. On purpose. Fact. In 1915, the year before Ishii died, taking the collective memory of thousands of years of his people with him, the Squaw Man had made over $533,000 on a $40,000 investment for its producers. That would be about 16 million bucks today, made on a $1 million investment. In 1914 and 1915, David Wark Griffith, better known as D.W. Griffith, another filmmaker, was also filming in California. His equipment set up in the San Bernardino Valley, beside a lake until recently home to the Yuhaviatum band of Serrano Indians. I say recently because just like the Yana and the Yahi, the Yuhaviatum had also been victims of the California genocide only 40-some-odd years earlier. D.W. Griffith, a Kentuckian and co-founder of United Artists, was filming his so-called masterpiece, Birth of a Nation, which glorified the Ku Klux Klan in such epic, sweeping grandeur 
that the KKK was revived, its membership swelling to between 3 and 6 million by 1924. Costing about $100,000 to make, just under $3 million today, this film would be released in February of 1915, eventually taking in the staggering sum of $50 million, and possibly a figure closer to double that amount. Somewhere between one and a half and three billion dollars in today's money. Talk about Christmas coming early. But, as we've said already, the business of America is business. And by God, there's no business like show business. Hooray for Hollywood indeed. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by your host, Brian Halpin. Before We Were White main theme, performed by Dave McLaughlin, Rodney Lancashire, Ray Cohn, and Steph West. Visit the Before We Were White YouTube channel for bonus content related to each episode. Episode notes, resources, show transcripts, and further reading lists are available to supporters on our members page at beforewewerewhite.com. Supporters are also added to our social media forum, where they can field questions pertaining to podcast episodes and much more. Our work would simply not be possible without the ongoing help of our friends. Heartfelt thanks go out to the rock-steady crew of Leanne, Jane, Pamela, Tara, and Julie. If you would like to support us as well, please visit www.beforewewerewhite.com forward slash support. Every contribution helps, large or small. Thank you.